Well, tonight we're in 1 Kings chapter 4. The 80 years that David and his son Solomon reigned over Israel were considered the golden age of Hebrew history. In the world at large, Homer was writing poetry in Greece. The dawning of Greek civilization had just begun. Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, the traditional world powers, were in a state of decline. So at the time, Israel was the most powerful nation on earth, the world's lone superpower. Solomon ruled over literally a global empire. He built alliances and he entered into trade agreements with foreign kings that brought about unprecedented wealth to the nation of Israel. He built a navy and a merchant marine. He opened up Israel to world markets and in the process spread his fame and reputation to the ends of the earth. David had won the battles and had established the dynasty. Solomon took it to the next level. He expanded the kingdom and God used him to make Israel great. Tonight we're going to take a look at the achievements of King Solomon. Well, chapter 4 begins. So King Solomon was king over Israel, and these were his officials. And the first 19 verses list the members of Solomon's administration. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest. And this was an important office because the high priest spoke for God. Elihoreph and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha, were scribes, or literally the secretaries of state. Condoleezza Rice and so forth. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder, or the state historian. And in those days, this was an important job, because this was the man who managed the king's legacy. What history would know of the king was in his hands. There was no media, there was no press, and so the official records of the state were those that were left to the future and to history. You could compare this guy to the president's press secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, you remember him from last week, he was the guy that kept killing everybody, you know, the executioner. He was over the army, the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff right here. The highest ranking military officer was Benaiah. Remember, he replaced General Joab. And of course, this was a promotion for Benaiah. He served under David as the head of the FBI, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. You remember that? Those were his secret service. And, and so this is a promotion now for Benaiah. Well, Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And, and Abiathar is included here because he was Zadok's predecessor. Well, Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers... This was the equivalent of the White House chief of staff. He managed the king's schedule and agenda and contacts. Zebud, the son of Nathan, a priest, and he was the king's friend. Isn't that something? You remember the prophet Nathan had been a wise confidant for David, and so Solomon became friends with his son Zebud. Ahishar, over the household, he ran the king's family affairs, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, over the labor force. He was in charge of the slave labor that Solomon had accumulated and the guilds of craftsmen that he employed in many of his building projects. Verse 7 tells us, And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. These are their names. Ben-Hur, 
I bet you didn't know Charlton Heston lived back then. In the mountains of Ephraim, Ben's Dedker. In Makaz, Shalbim, Beth Shemesh, and Elon, Beth Hanan. Ben Hesid in Aruboth, not Aruboth, but Aruboth. To him belong Succo and all the land of Hefer. Ben Abinadab, son of Abinadab, that's what Ben means. In all the regions of Dor, he had Taphath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Ben Abinadab was the king's son-in-law. And you can bet Solomon had his eye on him. Ben had married a princess. You know, there's an old saying, marry a girl whose daddy calls her a princess, and you're going to have to treat her like a queen. Be careful. This king's little girl, this was the king's little girl. She may have been a spoiled brat. Here's why I say that. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, the name Taphath means a dropping of ointment. Now that could be a good thing, a perfume. It could also mean a drip, which could mean a bad thing. And maybe Solomon was thinking of his poor son-in-law, Ben Abinadab, when he penned Proverbs chapter 27, verse 15. You know what it says? You guys know what it says. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. Both kinds of drips can get on your nerves and drive you a little nutso. And so, marrying a girl named Drippy. Verses 12 through 19 continue this list of governors whose names I cannot pronounce and their jurisdictions. And so I'll let you read their names, perhaps put you to sleep tonight. These were the revenue agents, though, who collected taxes for Solomon and the central government. Each man was responsible for the king's support for one month. It's interesting that these 12 divisions were not along tribal territories. And, and this is interesting. For some reason, Solomon divided the kingdom along non-traditional lines. And you know, that really isn't a bad idea from time to time. In essence, the king was trying to reshuffle the deck, break up a few unhealthy cliques that had gotten started, form a new friendships and alliances. This is often needed in the church. Isn't it amazing how we tend to gravitate toward the people that we already know and like? Times we need to be forced to reach out to new folks to create new bonds. When was the last time you went out of your way to say hello to someone that you didn't recognize? Try to create a new friend here at your own church. This was a good idea by the king. He kind of reshuffled the deck and structured new boundaries. Verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea and multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. A golden age. An age of prosperity, a time of plenty. In all of Israel, in the north, or Israel in the south, or Judah. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river. That is the Euphrates, not just the Jordan. He reigned from all the way the Euphrates back in Iraq, all the way across to the plain of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day, now catch this. You talk about living high on the, well, he didn't live high on the hog. He was a Jew, but, <laughs> but you talk about living high on the hog. Solomon's provision for one day 
was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal. A core consists of about 55 gallons. Now imagine every morning a man pulling up in the bread truck, pulling up to Solomon's dock at the royal kitchen with 30 55-gallon drums of fine flour. Another 60 55-gallon drums packed with meal or crushed grain. Evidently, the king and his court, man, they like to eat. Chowing down was a core activity in the household. Well, in addition to the bread, each day they ordered 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Solomon was no vegetarian. No, no. This was a meat and bread kind of man. Steak and ribs and lamb chops and barbecued venison and turkey and pheasant and duck. Oh, my. This reminds me. I went to the pastor's conference one year out in California, and these pastors from Michigan took me to a place. They made me go. They took me to a place called the Brazilian Steakhouse. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, my. They made me go. You sit down at the table, and all of a sudden, the waiter starts. You don't order anything. The waiter just starts bringing out various types of meat. They bring the meat out on a spit and just sort of put it on top of the table, and they literally shave it off the bone right there in front of you and just, and just see, serve you one cut of meat after another after another. Oh, it's incredible. I ate that night until it hurt. <laughs> Evidently, though, this is what went on every single night in Solomon's house around his table. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river. Again, the Euphrates from Tifsa, a city which is on the west bank of the Euphrates in what would today be Syria, even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. What a difference between him and our day. <laughs> he had peace all around him. Today, Israel finds opponents and warmongers all around them. David had conquered these kings. He had won the victories, but Solomon was left to enjoy the peace that followed. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Dan was the northernmost boundary in Israel. Beersheba was the southern border of Israel. And so this expression, from Dan to Beersheba, is the equivalent of us saying from north to south. All the land enjoyed peace under Solomon. And notice this expression, each man under his vine and his fig tree. This became sort of a proverbial picture of peace and prosperity. Everybody under their vine, under their fig tree. Every man just sort of kicked back under his fig tree. In the shade, laying on his hammock, sipping some sweet tea, not a care in the world. Life is good. That was the picture under Solomon's reign. You know, it's interesting. This phrase, every man under his vine and his fig tree, is used again several places. Isaiah 36, verse 16. Micah 4, verse 4. Zechariah 3, verse 10. 
In fact, in Israel's difficult days, this phrase will be used prophetically of the end of the age, when the Prince of Peace will return to this earth and establish his kingdom. In that day, when Jesus reigns over the earth, every man will sit under his vine and under his fig tree in the shade and enjoy an age of peace and prosperity. Messiah will usher in a global peace. Micah 4 tells us this, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Join with me as we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, yes. Verse 26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Uh, He did a lot of horsing around, didn't he? And 12,000 horsemen. You know, when we go to Israel, we always visit Megiddo. And there you can see Solomon's stables where he used to keep this incredible herd of horses. Actually kept them in several locations in Jerusalem and really all around his kingdom. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. They fed both Solomon and his cavalry. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. What a combination we find in this man Solomon. He was compassionate and kind as well as wise and understanding. Here's a man with a rare combination, a quick mind and a big heart. You know, most people are just the opposite. They're stubborn and they're stingy. They're narrow-minded and they're small-hearted. Solomon, though, he had an open mind. And he had this big, large heart for people. Solomon ruled with his head and with his heart. Verse 30 tells us, Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Recognize any of those guys? No. Recognize Solomon? Yes. That's because Solomon was smarter than all those guys. Actually, Ethan, you should recognize, he wrote Psalm 89. One psalm. Heman wrote Psalm 88. The other men, we know nothing about, but they were apparently wise guys in their day. Notice this about Solomon. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs, talk about a prolific songwriter. His songs were 1,005. That's a lot of hits. Wonder how many made the top 40 or the top 10 or went platinum. The book of Proverbs contains roughly 750 Proverbs. That means we only have 25% of Solomon's Proverbs. And of his 1,005 songs, you know how many we have? We got three. Psalm 72, Psalm 127, and the Song of Solomon are Solomon's songs. I guess we're going to have to wait until heaven to read the complete works of King Solomon. 
Well, look to it, verse 33. Also, he spoke of trees. The guy was into trees. From the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. In other words, these huge, colossal, you know, stately trees, the cedars of Lebanon, all the way down to the little moss that grows out of the cracks in the sidewalk that you kind of stump and rub your foot over to get them out of the cracks and all, you know. Solomon was an expert in it all. He spoke also of animals and birds and of creeping insects. He was into insects. He was into bugs and even fish. Solomon was a student of science. He was a botanist and a zoologist. Verse 34 says, And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The king of Israel had become a tourist attraction. Wise men from all over the world would journey to Jerusalem to match wits with the wisest king who had ever lived. In chapter 5, Solomon prepares to build the temple. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram, he had always loved David. They'd had a good relationship. Then Solomon sent to Hiram saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. You remember the blood David shed, the wars that David led, the hostilities that David fed. That's what disqualified him from constructing the building that God intended as a place of peace, the temple. David had been prohibited from building the temple. The task had been inherited by Solomon. And here he recruits Hiram's help. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And notice this language. He's not building a house for God. He's building a house for the name of the Lord my God. You see, a pagan temple was built with the intention of housing the God himself. In other words, the idol became the occupant. But Solomon knew that the true God, the God of Israel, the almighty God, could be contained in no earthly structure. God holds the heavens in his hand. How can he fit into a house? In one of his songs, Psalm 72, Solomon writes, Blessed be his glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Solomon knew that Jehovah God fills the universe. This temple was not built to inhabit God. This temple was built as a place to declare his name. And as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. And here Solomon is just quoting God's promise that he made to David that Solomon would build the temple. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Now his conversation with Hiram continues. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon. I think we got a picture. There's one of those stately cedars from up in Lebanon. Made great wood. It was the wood that they used to build the temple. And so he gets this wood from Hiram. And my servants will be your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. And of course, Tyre and Sidon, you know where they are on the map. They're up 
north of Israel up in what is today Lebanon, over on the coast. And so it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. And it's interesting that God used Gentiles to help the Hebrews build their temple. Hiram helped a Gentile. This was forgotten by later Jews who grew to hate the Gentiles. Then Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have considered the message which you sent me and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servant shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea and I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. And so he'll ship them down by sea, by raft, along the coast there to probably Joppa, Tel Aviv, and then they transported them up to Jerusalem. Notice the men of Tyre worked tirelessly for Solomon. And all they ask as a form of payment is a little food. And as we've already seen, Solomon had plenty to spare. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. And this was wise. He was looking out for his men. You know, they needed to spend a little time away from home, but not too much time. They needed to come back home to their wives and their kids. And so they worked out of three. Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stones in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in the work. The whole workforce that labored on the temple numbered 183,300 men. You remember in the days of David, the men of Israel were preoccupied with battle. It required a period of peace in order to free up the manpower that would be needed for construction. Well, verse 17 tells us, And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn or engraved stones to lay the foundation of the temple. Now, whenever we go to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you see these enormous stones that were used by the Romans in the rebuilding of the temple in 40 B.C. These stones that we see in Jerusalem today, obviously came later than the stones of Solomon's day, but they do kind of give you a picture of how large these stones must have been. In fact, Solomon's stones may have even been larger. You can see, just to the right of Yuval, you can see this is one stone that runs all the way down almost to the end of that corridor. One solid stone. I forget how many tons the stone weighs, but it's an enormous colossal stone. So when you read here that the king quarried large stones, believe me, he did. These were huge, huge stones. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, 
and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. You know, the construction of Solomon's temple has inspired many Jewish legends. Here's one quoted by Ginsburg. During the seven years it took to build the temple, not a single workman died who was employed about it, nor even did a single one fall sick. And as the workmen were sound and robust from first to last, so the perfection of their tools remained unimpaired until the building stood complete. Thus the work suffered no sort of interruption. Now, think about chiseling those stones. And your chisel didn't even get dull. Obviously, there were some supernatural things going on with the building of the temple. God was at work, making sure that the work went well, that there were no interruptions. In chapter 5, Solomon makes preparations for the temple. Now in chapter 6, the construction begins. But before we delve into it, let me remind you that God is also building a temple in our day. Not a temple made with hands, but a spiritual building. God is constructing a place in the world today that will honor and declare His name to the nations. The New Testament tells us that we, that you and I are that temple. In fact, Paul asked the believers in Corinth, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Just as Solomon carved out stones, and he fit them one on top of the other. 1 Peter chapter 2 refers to members of the church as living stones. And he says that we are being built up into a spiritual house. God is working among us to fit us together, to fashion us together. Don't think that your place is not important. Don't think that our gatherings in this church is not important. To the contrary, we are the place, we are the people where God is at work, where God is fitting us together so that His name can be declared and so that His honor can be shown. We are His temple in the world today. Jesus is a builder. He's constructing a temple today by making us fit and then by fitting our lives together and coordinating our efforts to bring glory to His name. In the Old Testament, the temple of Solomon was the one place on earth where you were sure to find God's presence the church today serves that very same purpose. Well, chapter 6 begins with a very important verse. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Verse 1 is extremely significant when it comes to the Old Testament timeline. The fourth year of Solomon's reign equals the 480th year after the Exodus. Now we know that Solomon took over in 970 BC. That would date the Exodus from Egypt at 1445 BC. It's important. This is how we date the Exodus, by tracking back from Solomon. And Solomon began construction of the temple in the Hebrew month of Ziv. Any guesses on where that falls on our calendar? March, April, you're right. Well, actually, April, May. But he began the project in the spring. You know, when you go to build a new house and, and you have time to plan it, when do you usually start? In the spring of the year. After the winter rains, and that's when he started his project, his building of the temple. Verse 2 provides the dimensions of the temple. And we've got a 
shot of it. There you go. Now, the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And if a cubit is 18 inches, which we think it was 18 inches, that would make the temple 90 feet long by 30 feet wide by 45 feet high. Remember, the most important building ever built was just 90 feet long by 30 feet wide by 45 feet high. The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. Did you know that when God designed a house, he wanted a front porch? He did. See the little front porch on the temple? That front porch was 30 feet wide by about 15 feet deep. And he made for the house with beveled frames. In, in other words, the windows were smaller on the outside than they were on the inside. Very little light, therefore, got in through the windows of the temple. The windows were just small enough so that little birds, little swallows and sparrows could sort of fly in and get up in the rafters and all of the temple, which brings up a psalm. Psalm 84 is one of my favorites. And in Psalm 84, the psalmist envies the little swallows and the sparrows who make their nests up in the rafters of the temple. And he says, oh, to be like one of these swallows, to be able to spend all day, every day, in the presence of the Lord. And he envies it. He would envy us because don't we have the same privilege now? Jesus has told us he'll never leave us or forsake us. Against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. Now, when we constructed our building right here, we cut costs by not giving ourselves any storage space. And over the years, this has been very inconvenient. But the temple had plenty of storage. It had chambers all around the inner court. In fact, there were three levels of storage the lowest chamber was five cubits, or about seven and a half feet wide. The middle was six cubits, or nine feet wide. And the third was seven cubits, or ten and a half feet wide. Pretty good-sized closets. For he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams, notice this, so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. The outside walls of the holy place were tiered, three stories high, all for storage, and the beams were not fastened to the walls so that if you were inside the temple looking at the walls, you wouldn't see any nail marks or any scars in the boards. This is important, for God is holy. There are no blemishes in God's presence. And therefore, you know, God was on the inside of the temple looking at those walls, and therefore they, they didn't want nail holes in the walls or else blemishes would be presented before the Lord. Verse 7 reveals an interesting point. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. Isn't that amazing? The stones were cut exactly so that they would fit together without the use of fasteners or mortars or, or hammers or saws. And they were sized and fitted off-site. Then they were brought onto the site, and they were all fitted together. 
God wanted the temple to be built amidst a peaceful atmosphere. You know, which brings up a point. Sometimes we forget that it's not our busyness. It's not our clamor that pleases God. It's our faith. And it's our trust. And it's our willingness to rest in His will. You know, whenever you serve the Lord, don't create a lot of noise in the... You know, a lot of people do that. Oh, they love to serve the Lord, but they're noisy about it. Some people only serve the Lord if they can do it with a bang and attract a little attention to themselves. Hey, when you serve the Lord, do it peacefully. Do it quietly. We learn later in the Old Testament that the only noise heard during the building of the temple were the praises of the Levites. The Levites praised the Lord during the construction. And this should be the only thing that comes out of our service for God. Not a lot of noise, not a lot of clamor, not a lot of bang, but just praise and adoration for God. This was a strange construction site indeed. Verse 8, the doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple. They went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. And so he built the temple and finished it. And he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. And he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. They were attached to the temple with cedar beams. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. Now the outside of the temple was stone, but the inner walls were all paneled with this cedar wood and they were overlaid with gold. Verse 15, And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. From the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. You know, stone is a dead, inanimate object. Wood, though, speaks of life. And in the presence of God, there's always life, and life more abundantly. Then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. That 20-cubit room was the Holy of Holies. And he built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. Now Solomon's temples followed a similar layout as to Moses' tabernacle. There was the outer court that contained the bronze altar and the laver where the priests washed. Then the temple proper, the 90 by 30 by 45 structure consisted of two courts. The innermost court of the Holy of Holies was 20 cubits square or 30 feet square, 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, 30 feet high. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant and God's Shekinah glory in the holy place set the menorah, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And on either end of the holy place were doors or veils of separation. Now here's the dimensions of the holy place. And in front of it, the temple sanctuary was 40 cubits long or 60 feet. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with ornamental buds and open flowers, all with cedar There was no stone to be seen. So you had a holy place that was 60 feet long, and then you had the Holy of Holies, which was another 30 feet long. The inside of the temple, uh, I read that, 
he says, and he prepared the inner sanctuary inside the temple or the Holy of Holies to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits high, and 20 cubits high, 30 by 30 by 30. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon spares no expense, notice. The walls, even the floor of the Holy of Holies were all gold-plated. Now, I know your wife's made you put down that nice little wood stuff in the, on the floor, and you, you wonder why we're spending so much money on a floor, but that's nothing compared to the floor of the temple. Cedar boards, cypress boards, overlaid with gold. What an what a amazing structure. Verse 21, So Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. In other words, along the doors into the, the Holy of Holies, they had this gold chain that sort of reinforced that idea of separation between man and God. He says, the whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. These Olive angels stood 15 feet high. One wing of the cherub was five cubits, and the other wing of the cherub, five cubits. Ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. These are two angels. They have 15-foot wingspan. Put them both in the Holy of Holies, and they span from one side of the Holy of Holies all the way to the other side. And the other cherub was 10 cubits. Both cherubim were of the same size and shape. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was the other cherub. Now, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23, we've been studying Hebrews, by the way, tells us that the tabernacle and evidently the temple that followed were in reality a small-scale model of God's throne room in heaven. If you want to know what heaven's like, you need to study the temple. And whenever we're allowed a glimpse into heaven, we always see angels hovering around God's throne. Solomon's temple also had its angels, these gold angels made from olive wood. Now, here's an interesting detail. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, when John sees the heavenly scene, he sees four living creatures, or four of these cherubim. It's interesting that Solomon made two cherubim for the temple. But if you recall, the Ark of the Covenant also had on the lid or on the mercy seat two cherubim that went up and covered the top of the Ark. So when you add Solomon's two angels and then the two angels on top of the Ark, what do you have? Solomon's temple also has four cherubim in the Holy of Holies, just like the throne room of God. Well, then he set the cherubim inside the inner room and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. Also, he overlaid the cherubim with gold, golden angels. And then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and outer sanctuaries. Now, before he died, David had stockpiled materials to be used in the temple construction. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5, David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, 
And the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. And verse 14 mentions 100,000 talents of gold and 1 million talents of silver. And does anybody remember how much a talent is? About 100 pounds. And bronze and iron beyond measure, for it is so abundant. Verse 16 of 1 Chronicles 22 sums it up. Of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. In today's gold market, the temple, just the gold, would have cost $30 billion. Now, imagine a building that when you include the outer court was only about 14,000 square feet, much smaller than our church. Imagine a building with 14,000 square feet costing $30 billion. I haven't figured out the square foot price, but that's pretty spendy. Solomon's temple represented the glory of God on earth. When folks passed by, they were supposed to whisper, wow. There has never been a building constructed as lavish and as extravagant as the temple of Solomon. He says, for the entrance of the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel or the header and the doorpost were one-fifth of the wall. Now, it's interesting. The veil in the tabernacle was replaced by a door in the temple. Can you see it? You see, in, in this tent, Solomon's temple, there was a door there, not a veil. And of course, somebody, you know, is going to ask, well, wait a minute. When Jesus was crucified, didn't the veil in the temple, wasn't it torn from top to bottom? And indeed it was, but remember, it was a different temple. Solomon's structure was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. and then rebuilt later by Zerubbabel and then King Herod. The temple of Jesus' day was called the second temple. And apparently they went back to what was in the tabernacle, which was a veil. But in Solomon's temple, there was a door. Verse 32, the two doors were of olive wood. And he carved on them figures of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. And he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees, so that the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood. Two panels comprised one folding door, and two panels comprised the other folding door. Two double doors, a total of four panels. And then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved work. And he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. That means that the stones, you remember the, the inner height of the temple was 45 feet. That means that three layers of stone, these stones had to be 15 feet high since the ceiling was 45 feet. I'm telling you, these were some enormous stones which really made the temple one of the ancient wonders of the world. It would be a tough job for a modern construction crew, let alone ancient builders. This would have made a great episode for extreme engineering. What a contrast, though, between the tabernacle and the temple. This is important. Look at the contrast. The tabernacle was temporary, whereas the temple was a permanent structure. 
The tabernacle was erected in the desert, whereas the temple was built on a mountain, Mount Moriah. The tabernacle was ugly to the eye. When you approached it from outside, all you could see were the dark badger skins that served as its covering, whereas the temple, you saw the temple glistening in the sunshine, and you thought, wow, what a marvelous sight. Everyone in Jerusalem could see its beauty and its glory. It's interesting, just as there were two dwellings for God on earth, the tabernacle and later the temple, there are two comings of Jesus Christ. Catch this. The tabernacle represents his first advent, whereas the temple, his second coming. The first time Jesus comes, he comes to a desert land, a world marred by sin at his second coming, Jesus brings the mountain of God to earth. He purifies the planet, and he reigns over the whole earth from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. The tabernacle was ugly, whereas the temple was glorious. You could see the beauties of the tabernacle only from the inside, and likewise with Jesus. You remember, according to Isaiah 53, we're told of Jesus' appearance that it was without form and comeliness that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus lacked a physical attraction. You had to get to know Jesus to see the beauty and the glory. Same with his first coming, same with the tabernacle, but when he comes the second time, he will radiate with glory. As the disciples saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration, glistening in white, glowing and shining, that's how he'll come when he returns, radiant, Beautiful, a magnificent Savior. His first coming was temporary, short-lived, just 30-some-odd years. Then he was crucified. But when Jesus comes again, he will reign and rule forever. He'll establish a permanent kingdom. Isn't it interesting? Tabernacle represents Jesus' first coming. The temple represents his second coming. Verse 37. In the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the 11th year, in the month of Buell, now we're in October, November, which is in the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building. And in that, he's rounding it off. Actually, it was about seven and a half years it took to construct the temple. Now, in chapter 7, the author pauses the discussion on the temple to mention a few of Solomon's other architectural achievements. Verse 1. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished all his house. <laughs> it's interesting. The king spent twice as long building his palace as he did building the temple. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon, which may have been a summer retreat for the royal family. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars and it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and windows were opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. This was his summer palace. Verse 6, he also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. This hall may have been an addition to his palace there in Jerusalem. 
And then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of light workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. God, to make the wife happy. All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out, found the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits and some 8 cubits. My, 10 cubits long. That's 15 feet, some of these stones, huge stones. And above were more costly stones hewn to size in cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Verse 13. Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram. This is not Hiram. This is Huram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre. He was a half-Jew. He was a bronze worker. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skilled in working with all the kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Solomon hires this man from Tyre to do the bronze work on his projects. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, 27 feet high, almost three stories. And a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. They were 27 feet high. They were 18 feet in circumference. Two huge columns. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillars. The capitals were caps that went on, ornamental caps that went on top of the pillars. And the height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. This extended the pillars another seven and a half feet. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. And so he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other. I mean, these were just ornamental, beautiful pieces of work. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall, and he's not talking about the temple any longer, but the hall of judgment. They were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface, which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Now he goes back to the temple. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name, gave these pillars names. The one on the right, he named Jachin, which means he shall establish. And he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz, which means in him is strength. Top of the pillars were in the shape of lilies. And so the work of the pillars was finished. Do you have the picture? Do we have a picture of it? There you go. To the right, there was Jachin. And to the left, there was Boaz. The bronze posts were a reminder to the priests as they came in, as they went out, that we are established in God's truth and God sends us out in His strength. We are established in God's truth and He sends us out in His strength. We should take and establish those pillars in front of our church. 
so that when you walk into the doors, you remember that we are established in God's truth. This is what brings stability. This is what establishes a life, God's truth. And then we go out and serve in God's strength. Verse 23, And he made the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. In other words, 15 feet in diameter. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. It was seven and a half feet high. It was 45 feet in circumference. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. And in the sea, it was a giant basin that was kept in the outer court where the priests would wash before they entered into the presence of God and did their sacrifices. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on the back of 12 oxen, three looking toward the north. These all bronze figures that were formed by Hurim. Three looked toward the north, three looked toward the west, three looked toward the south, and three looked toward, you know which direction? The east. You got it. You guys are quick. The sea was set upon them and all their back parts pointed inward. This is how they constructed it. There's a huge bowl sitting on the back of 12 oxen. Their back parts all pointing together in the outer court of the temple. Now the sides of the sea was a handbreadth thick. And it's the length of your hand. That's how thick the, the sea was, a handbreadth. And its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. Now, I, I wanted to know how they knew that because it really depends on how deep your bathtub is. Never mind. 2,000 baths. The bath was a measure of about nine gallons. Now, I don't know. Do you, when you take a bath, does it take nine gallons? That that's, was the measurement called a bath, nine gallons. But 2,000 baths meant 18,000 gallons. So the sea held 18,000 gallons of water. We know from a parallel account of the temple's construction in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, Solomon also built a huge bronze altar where the sacrifices were offered. Have a picture of that? There we go. You see the sea to the left. You see the altar to the right. The outer court of the temple contained both a mountain which is the altar, and the sea, which is the labor. So there in the outer court was the mountains and the sea. And this depicted two types of cleansing. The blood cleanses the spirit of a man. It washes our spirit clean, whereas the water washes the outer man, washes off our hands, cleanses our mind. You know, cleansings today come in two types. The spiritual, the inner cleansing takes place when you trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But there is an outer cleansing that we need daily. There's a refreshing of the mind and motive and thoughts and heart. This comes when we open up the scriptures and we pour out the water of God's word upon our minds and lets it cleanse us and lets us just roll over our thoughts and our assumptions. We need both these types of cleansing. Well, in addition to the bronze sea, you can read verses 27 through 39. They tell us that Solomon also made 10 more lavers for the outer court. They all sat on carts. You can read about their construction on your own tonight. 
But I love the idea that God's cleansing was on wheels. Did, did you get this? You see the little one down, the little one? There were 10 of those, but they were on carts. They were on wheels. And think about this. God's cleansing was on wheels. I like that, though, because it reminds me that the Holy Spirit follows me because he knows throughout my day I need numerous cleansings and refreshings. And, and so the Holy Spirit's just after me all day long, just kind of rolling around right behind me, cleansing me and washing me and purifying me. Verses 40 through 46 contain an inventory of all that Hiram made for Solomon. Verse 47 tells us that they didn't even weigh the total amount of bronze. So much was used. They didn't even weigh it. Verse 48. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, and the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. And notice here another point. The one menorah that was in the tabernacle, it was replaced by ten golden lampstands in the temple. Interesting. Verse 50. The basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. Even the hinges were made out of gold. Can you imagine? So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now the construction is finished. Solomon plans now an open house. And guess who pays him a visit? <laughs> of course, God shows up at Solomon's dedication. And that's where we'll be in chapter, chapter 8. You got it? You understand the temple and all that? You got it? Everybody's expert on the temple? Got it? Great. The tabernacle represents... What? First coming of Christ. The temple spoke of second coming of Christ. Remember, when you study the Old Testament, there's one rule. Look for Jesus on every page. Look for Jesus on every page. There's pictures of him everywhere. And here we see a beautiful picture of Jesus. Not necessarily his first coming, but his second coming. Go back and read through the chapters and try to look at it from that point of view and see the wonderful nuggets and truths that the Lord might show you.